Well, hello and welcome to episode 131 of the 1099 for the week of January 29th, 2018. I'm your host, Josiah Renauden, and with me today is a senior writer at MMAfighting.com, a writer for TheRinger.com, a panelist for the MMA Beat, the man in the hat, Chuck Mendenhall. Chuck, how you doing today? Good, good, man. Sounds like I do a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> That's the point of those intros. It really makes the guest seem super important. It does. It's like, look at all these things this person does. I mean, speaking of things you do, you just got back from Boston, from UFC 220 with the light heavyweight belt on the line, the heavyweight belt on the line. How was that? How was your trip back? How was the entire experience? It was a lot of fun, man. Um, I'll tell you what, like, you know, some some of these arenas these days, you go to them and, you know, through the prelims, it's just not filled in yet. There's kind of a, a, a building energy, but it's not there until the main card and all that stuff. None of that was in existence um, <laughs> on Saturday night, man. That was like, it was rocking from the from the moment uh, Matt Bissett. Uh, fought in, on the prelims, uh, being a kind of a, a more of a local kid, and people had followed his story. So it was rocking, man. And by the time it got to those uh, a couple of those uh, those those big fights at the end, I, I thought the place was uh, was really alive with good energy, and it was a lot of fun. That first round of that uh, of that heavyweight fight oh was. Like no other, man. It was just like it, nobody was breathing, it felt like, in that room. Just a, a <laughs> lot of, you know, everybody was waiting for somebody to get knocked out. But uh, it didn't happen. <laughs> the fight kind of drug on. But that first round, I'll always remember that. It's weird. People kind of, I felt like, walked away a little bit sour on that main event. But yeah. that first round, you just, you know, whether you were there or like me watching at home, it was incredible. Just the fact that, like, these two dudes are just massive and skilled and technical in a way that at any point anyone can go down, which is kind of the cliche with any sort of UFC fight. But that one really felt like it. Like, one false move and suddenly someone's on a highlight reel till the end of time. And, and Boston seems like a great sports city in general where I, I even though the card overall wasn't exactly the highest quality other than the two top billings they did a good job of putting local people on there and that's what boston really seems to care about did you get a lot of wooing was there a lot of wooing in the oh crowd and annoying people it's funny because uh you know you're talking about them may beat I, I know that luke thomas my colleague had uh went on a tirade about his hatred <laughs> about this particular <laughs> phenomenon that's been sweeping all these ufc arenas but uh there was quite a bit of it going on early and it seemed to kind of subside as the fights went on, which I was very thankful for. Because the truth of the matter is, it is it, it's oddly distracting. Um, you know, just idle moments where, as a writer or as, as just somebody who's contemplating the fight, it's just very distracting to hear that kind of raining in uh, from different areas of the arena. It just gives it such a surreal feel, almost like an asylum or something. You feel like you're, yeah. <laughs> you're hearing the mad screams of, of people from all over the place. But... It uh, it kind of subsided either that man or I tuned it out at some point, but I don't I didn't seem to notice it as much as the main card came on, you know what I mean? So yeah. it, it got a little better. <laughs> it's it, it the the variety of UFC and just overall MMA audiences is kind of astounding because you either have people who are wooing and obviously just calling for blood, and then you have yeah maybe the Brazilian crowd at times who are just appreciating sweeps and like oh my god this guy went from full guard to half guard and everyone uh, starts clapping and that has to be. Is I that will refreshing? say that. I will say that about the Boston crowd. In general, if a guy attempts a takedown, you get a very mixed reaction depending on where you're at. But for whatever reason, man, like on this particular card, and especially in the Miocic fight, when he went for these takedowns, it would erupt. It's like people really understood that, you know, this is his best way of neutralizing the power. This is his best way of kind of um, you know, getting getting off his game plan and not playing into the hands of Ngannou and all that. So it was a it was a very educated feeling crowd that appreciated a game plan, you know, mm. above just the knockout. So I thought that was kind of interesting. There's a couple of other fights too where 
um, as guys kind of went to the ground, there was an eruption. And there, there, sometimes, especially in Vegas and other places, you get a bit of a groan, especially yeah. on the second takedown attempt. Like people are just very, they get very bored with that that game plan right away. I didn't feel like that was in evidence in Boston. It was kind of refreshing on that level, actually. I love just hearing that from home, hearing the actual cheering from takedowns because the Bellator yeah. card, which is also that same night, there was some definite groans from the Roy McDonald <laughs> takedowns or Chael Sonnen takedowns. People are like, oh my God, again, we're going right. to the ground every single time. Uh, it's funny, this podcast is traditionally about um, anything other than MMA. <laughs> it, right, it's right. a very video game focused writing podcast, but you know, it's MMA is a passion of mine. And I, it's funny, I, I do think there are some similarities between what I do and what you do, even though I am covering people who create games or even play games and you're talking about people who are cage fighting, which sound as different as possible. The main similarity, I think, is how difficult it is to describe to other humans what we do for a living. Yeah. Where someone comes up and they're like, hey, you know, if you're at like a meeting uh, friends, friends or at a dinner party and they ask like, oh, what's your career? And you're like, boy, <laughs> how can I explain this without sounding like an insane person? At this yeah. point, what do you tell people when they ask you what you do for a living? It's very funny, man, that you should mention that because, I mean, I, I have people that I've known my, my whole life. I'm talking about family members um, who I feel fairly certain have no idea what I do. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I think a lot of them still kind of think MMA is pro wrestling um, or, you know, it's just it's choreographed in some way. You know, they, they're, they, they, it's kind of an empty kind of questioning line of questioning about what it is. Actually, they just kind of want, you know. They just kind of live by their own assumption. They don't really hear what I'm telling them. It's it's a weird yeah. it's a weird dynamic. Um, that's and that's with people who just don't pay any attention to the sport whatsoever. Um, in casual company, it's a little it's a little weird too because for the same reasons, a lot of people don't know it. But what I realize is I try to gauge. It's almost like you gauge at this point whether the person will understand what you do or not. If 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 I can tell that the person knows what MMA is, it's very simple, obviously. You just say, yeah, I write about MMA. This is, uh, you know, it's very easy to translate exactly what you do. If I have a feeling they have a, a vague idea about what it is, I can kind of go that direction. But I, I, I really don't feel comfortable talking about it, to be honest, because I don't want to explain. I get tired of explaining to people yeah. kind of the in and outs and what it is and all that stuff. So I'll just, I'll have like a very basic... Yeah, hey, I cover, you know, fire cage fighting. That's, you know, th yeah, I cover that for a living. That's what I do. And I'll kind of try to drop it and go back into what they're talking about. But if it's somebody who's completely ignorant, um, it's always a it's always a crapshoot. It's like, do you do you want to explain it? You know what I mean? Do you want to go Or do you just say it? like sports writer? Like or I write about sports. Writer. Exactly. And a lot of people, that's I find that that's a very big default of the conversation is, oh, well, do you do you, um, do you cover other sports too? It's like they want to get it in the realm of their understanding a little bit. Yeah. And I'm like, ah, occasionally I, I will and I have and all that stuff. But um, yes, I would say that we are probably similar in that. Um, <laughs> I'd say that it's I'm probably it's probably about a 40% rate of people who even know what the sport is um, who, in these casual conversations. And uh, but it, it, it's it's gotten better over time. Uh, it used to be a lot worse 10 years ago, that sort of thing. But over time, it's mm -hmm. gotten a lot better. It's, people understand the sport a little more. Yeah, and having figures like Ronda Rousey and Conor McGregor, even yeah. though they're not really fighting right now, it would be helpful True. to be like, oh, I've covered her, I've covered him. And I know when I was writing for a site called GameSpot, which is a CBS site, I would just be like, oh, I'm a writer for CBS, is what I would tell right. people. And they'd be like, oh, that sounds like a normal human well, thing that humans do. it was would easy do. for me to say that, too, when, when I was um, working at ESPN yeah. for those, those, those few years, uh, what, from like 2010 to, 2010 to maybe 2013. So it was very simple then to just be like, oh, I just, I'm a sports writer at ESPN. You could, you could very easily. But when you say MMA fighting or um, – 
you know, the ringer has helped out a little bit because some people know what the ringer is on a broader level. But when you say MMA fighting, it's just very specific and literal. And I feel like that confuses people. So a lot of times I'll say SP Nation or um, I'll come easier. up with a more generic. Yeah, the, the, the real thing is it's just like anything. You just get tired of explaining to people in casual situations that, you know, really don't care. And I'm, I feel like that's really the that's really the the idea there. I'm pretty sure my mom still doesn't know what I do. So yeah, it's just yeah. It's, it's, it's a learning process. <laughs> you have been doing this for a long time, and like you said, it's people are more familiar with it now. There's an, enough big names out there that if you say UFC or even MMA now, people will get it. But at what point during this run did you feel like actually covering MMA full time was a viable long term career choice? I mean, for this stretch, MMA wasn't even legal in the state of New York. So when did this really True. feel real for you? I mean, man, it was a it was a a gradual, incremental kind of situation back in the mid two thousands, like kind of the later. It was maybe two thousand and seven. I was editing a newspaper out in California, an alternative weekly, like. Um, um, you know, village voice type thing, but it was out in Southern California. And I, a couple of the guys fell into my range of coverage. The guy in Quentin Jackson was kind of on the, on the, on the skirt of it being in Orange County, but Dan Henderson and Temecula actually was in our range. So I, I was, um, I had watched the sport casually and I wrote a cover feature on him um, had, and I wrote this whole build up too. like each week I would, I would do this, uh, some kind of piece leading up to Dan Henderson's fight with, um, Anderson Silva at UFC 82, which was almost 10 years ago. It'd be 10 years ago, March 1st. Oh my God. So, uh, that was, so this is the first time I really wrote about it where, and it wasn't in any kind of, uh, transitional, I was an editor, so I wasn't, I didn't care about, you know, covering the sport. It was just like, oh, this is this interest story right here in town and fighting is taking off and I had been paying attention to it. I like Dan Henderson. So why not, why not focus on him? And I, so I was going to his camp in Big Bear and all that stuff. Um, and, uh, and then I went out to the fight and I did this big cover story coming out of it. And that was it. It was, uh, I just did this big piece. I enjoyed it a lot. It was fun to meet a lot of the people in the, in the game, you know, like, cause I hadn't really met too many of people covering it or the, the inside players, the periphery, all that stuff. So it was a lot of fun, and it just kind of snowballed in the sense that um, some people saw the piece, including um, uh, Thomas Trebezi, who's uh, UFC.com. Uh, he's like the editor of that site, and I kind of, you know, it's kind of gauged like, hey, you want to do some stuff for the site? And so I, I did. So early on, and this was just like completely side project. I had no idea. I didn't really care about being objective and all that mm -hmm. stuff because my job at the time was editing that my you know this this was just sort of like yeah sure i'm just a fan I'll, I'll contribute to this sort of thing so i did that uh for a little bit and it just kind of snowballed man it was probably about a year after that that henderson piece i was writing stuff for fight magazine which is no longer it's it's no longer around but it was a big magazine at the time for mma and i started doing big pieces for them cover stories and at some point um coinciding just basically with the boom of everything that was going on with MMA, you know, it just, it just happened. It just happened yeah. suddenly where I was like, you know, I remember having a, a discussion with my wife. I'm like, do you think that, I mean, is there a possibility I could just segue into this, <laughs> just covering MMA, you know, cause it sounded fun. I'm a big sports guy anyway. So, um, it just, one day I was like, I'm going to try it. I stopped working at the paper and started doing it, you know, freelance basically. And then, um, by 2010, I was already doing so much stuff to sustain myself freelance, moved to Connecticut, started working for ESPN, and uh, from there just kind of took off, man. So it's like, it's it's one of those weird incremental things, but it's, it seemed to happen at warp speed too, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because um, the sport itself is kind of like that. 
And so um, that's kind of how it has it's been, and it's been fun, but it's also been a little bit like like I know we talked about this a little off uh, off the recording here, but it's it obviously has a lot of ups and downs covering you know <laughs> such a such a such a sport as this, which which has all of its own ups and downs. So um, you just kind of ride the roll with the punches, as the pun is. You know what I mean? Yeah, it, it's such a strange sport because yes, there are leagues other than UFC. There is Bellator. There's is it PFA now? Is that what it's called? I don't even know. There's LFA. Yeah. There's there's all those different like smaller ones, but the UFC is the main thing that drives the sport forward. Which is unlike you know football or basketball, where you're dealing with thirty or thirty two different teams that make their own decisions and all contribute to one major league. I mean, you're covering events like the UFC purchase. You're covering yeah. Ronda Rousey possibly going to the WWE and Conor boxing instead of doing any sort of MMA. These are all major stories that really generate interest or important to cover but can it be terrifying writing about the major stars leaving and the company changing hands since the success of the UFC largely allows you to keep writing about MMA I mean it feels like we're finally at a stable point where I don't really know if you can call this the fastest growing sport anymore but it now feels like a sport that people want to cover but is there still this sense in the back of your mind of man this could all (laughs) evaporate if the UFC makes a couple of dumb moves Yes. Um, I feel like that has always been in place. There's always this, um, this, what is it like a a feeling that it could all just disappear. I remember I've even talked to Ariel Hawani, who's maybe more entrenched in the sport than any other journalist. And he, um, you know, he still says that he wakes up and he's like, you know, just thankful that it's, (laughs) that it's still going, it's still rolling (laughs) along. And I'm like, it's weird. I, I think it's just part of the conditioning of where it came from. Um, you know, it always seemed like it was on very a slippery slope. If it would ever get across to any kind of mainstream um, media, you know, if it would ever get across mainstream at all, like that sort of thing, it felt like it could go away. And then it, even right now, as it loses some of its stars, um, you go back to that line of thinking, that basic philosophy of like, will this keep going or is this about to stop? Or are we about to start to witness the spiral of the sport? Um, and every little weird thing that happens in between, like you mentioned kind of the sale, like, what does that, what does it ultimately mean? You know, you have to start thinking in these big, you know, big picture terms of all the changes that that could bring about to the sport and everything else. Um, the Reebok deal that kind of everybody gets upset about. And all of a sudden you have a free agent market based on that alone that want to defect the Bellator because they want to have their sponsor money again. It's just, these are weird things, man. Like if you're working at ESPN, for instance, there's a business writer. Usually there's, um, you know, there's people covering this as MMA. You are literally learning every aspect of the company, as well as the fighters, the roster, the motivations you're, you have to, you have to be able to learn and write about just about everything. Um, and it's, it can be daunting. There's a, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, when the whole USADA, you know, started coming in as a third party arbiter, you know, suddenly you had to pay attention to what what certain drugs were and what that means to these fighters. And, you know, in competition, you know, you you had to educate yourself on the fly about everything that was going to happen, what that means. And and then, of course, remember how it plays out. So it's not just, you know, people are always like, oh, it's so it'd be so fun to attend fights and write about fights. Well, yeah, that's that's like this point, maybe 20 percent of what I do. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah. like uh, so all, all it's all that peripheral stuff that you kind of have to you know, you find yourself spin, especially like the MMA beat and things like that. We're going to be discussing all of those, everything that happens in that world more than we will the fights. So it's like you got to be completely educated on that and uh, and and ready to come to the table with 
knowledge you know what i mean yeah. and i feel like that that's the that's, fights that's the weird like, part the, yeah they're actually such a small chunk of what you do because if you look at the event ufc 220 over the weekend you look at the main event and of course it's this big heavyweight fight maybe the best heavyweight fight we've seen on paper but then there's this big aspect of stipe is not getting respect as the champion and there's this contract <laughs> dispute you look at the co-main event and the main thing i was thinking is Man, like USADA got to John Jones, who John Jones just got through this um, this steroid thing that he's dealing with right now. So the fight is important, but there's this background information about like, well, the quote unquote real champion is dealing with like drug accusations while these other two people are fighting. So everything surrounding it seems like it might actually be sometimes more interesting. You're talking about contract disputes. You're talking about, like you said, with um, the, the Reebok deal where suddenly they're Previously, some fighters are getting $100,000 in sponsorships are now getting five to $10,000. And you're like, what does that mean for the future of the UFC? And do they even care? There's right. so much going on with it. And the holistic view seems important. You mentioned before that you were at ESPN. And you were there kind of before they started investing more heavily in MMA coverage. Because I now get notifications on my phone when a fight falls through or every single main event or main card. That's got to be a lot of notifications. It's a lot of notifications. And it's a lot of like, <laughs> oh, Stipe just won this. Or you'll also get like notifications after Ariel does his MMA hour. And there'll be a lot of stories coming out of that. Do you think right. the mainstream media's view of MMA has significantly changed or improved? Or is it just more ESPN taking it more seriously? Um. Certainly, it's improved. Uh, you know, when I was first starting there, there were very few. They, actually, they they hadn't had a, a content share with SureDog at the time, mm. and so there were guys like Jake Ross, and they were just borrowing his little snippet columns, um, just as a daily feed, basically to have some content on there. And then they then they brought in some people, uh, myself included, and I felt like that was the first big move, and that. That's helped inform a lot of the middle ground people, the editors and stuff, who uh, maybe we're already working there, but we're not really paying attention to MMA. So it just kind of happened in that sense. It kind of it um, people were paying attention to it suddenly in the middle, the middle area, the kind of behind the scenes people. And I think that that helped make it a little more infectious. It also helped at, during that time from 2010 to 2013. There was a steady rise. I mean, the, the page views were huge for MMA. And I felt like that really opened a lot of eyes um, in terms of, hey, you know, this sport, people really love to read about it. They love the content. So all that stuff really helped. So I feel like they, um, they've been very, they've been very good about kind of, you know, keeping that, that vibe. You'll notice these days, if you watch, if you're watching ESPN, for instance, on the little, on the ticker, any news that comes up, they'll, you'll see the UFC news across their ticker, which to me, that was like a big, <laughs> a big yeah, deal. Big Cause sign. I was like, well, yeah. Nah. yeah. Cause it means that they're just, they, they, obviously that's to a more just a sports oriented audience and they're feeding you UFC news, just same they would NFL or anything else. So, um, all those things, man, were were very good. So I feel like it's been both. Like they, I think they they got behind it. They understood how to get you know how to cover it better. And there's been bigger and bigger enthusiasm. Uh, I don't know if it ever reaches the top. You know, getting to the Disney executives and stuff like that. But um, the enthusiasm is certainly there, man. And it's it's grown over the years. And it was fun. Even in Boston, I saw a lot of the ESPN guys. Um, a lot of my old colleagues and stuff who were all there. So I feel like it's definitely uh, it's definitely picked up business over the years. It has to be weird knowing what to actually cover and what not and what to print as fact and what to print as Dana White said. Because for those who don't <laughs> know, Dana White, the president of the UFC, is this very much of a Trump figure. I mean, he he 
basically endorsed Donald Trump throughout the entire campaign. Mm-hmm. He, he claims that the only entity that really knows anything about his company is the company itself, and you should only believe them. He's, he's <laughs> boasting about the success of years like 2017, which did have the big Conor McGregor versus Floyd Mayweather boxing event, but... Like I just said right there, that was a boxing event. And he was saying, you know, 2017, biggest year ever when all the numbers are pointing otherwise. He's feuding with Showtime executives about facts. He's throwing media out of certain events if he doesn't like their coverage. He's, you know, banning people. Do you see this sort of attitude as a Dana White problem or is it more of a cultural UFC problem that's permeated everything? Do you think if Dana White suddenly disappeared, we would see a different UFC or is that so ingrained that you can't really stop it? See, and again, this is such a unique situation, right? Because this, the UFC would not be there. It wouldn't be where we wouldn't be talking about it right now. If it weren't for Dana White kind of being as audacious and crazy as he is, you know, like, uh, just, you know, being basically inflating, you know, skewing perception, inflating the truth, um, doing all that stuff. He's done this forever. It's just that now it's on a scale where there's so much more scrutiny. Um, and he's been, I mean, so much of what he says has been proven to be absolutely false, you know, over time or even at the moment, you know, that you, you learn to take it with a grain of salt. The only thing I can say is he's a promoter. We now, I think that the MMA media accepts him more as a promoter, meaning you accept that he, some of what you get from him is true. Some of it is uh, well-meaning. Some of it is he's putting it out there specifically to put pressure on a fighter or somebody else to react. Uh, you know, he uses the media a lot for those reasons to kind of get, um, you know, somebody to sign the dotted line type of situation. Like he'll, <laughs> or whatever, like, or they'll announce a fight that is still in the works. Yeah. Um, just just to put the pressure on to get it done, to get it finalized. I mean, these are just weird old tactics that he can still get by with because the scrutiny is not 100% there. It's just bigger now. Um, but at the same time, man, it's I think he was the perfect guy to drive this thing to where it got, you know, to where to where we ended up um, to basically hit all these platforms and uh, for people to pay attention to it because it is it's been phenomenal, man, the rise of, of uh, the UFC and MMA in general. And so much of it has to do with just him, his willingness to um, to sell us what we want to hear. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. A lot of times, and I feel like the media back in the day um, was just happy. Especially a lot of the media that started covering UFC when I did. Um, I think they were just happy to have a, a cool job, you know. And so, like, if if Dana was saying whatever Dana was saying, there was a there was this natural instinct almost tied to a survival instinct to say like, "Hey, I'm part of this. I want to keep this going too. I'm just, you know." You, you'd go along with what Dana said. We're well past that now. It's just one of those situations where now he's he's the guy that you have to um, contend with. He obviously, um, he still carries major weight in terms of everything that's going on. And he's going to carry headlines very well and stuff like that, which a lot of the sites pay attention to. Yeah. But anybody like me, I mean, you, uh, the whole game now is to read between the lines, man. You, you constantly read between the lines. And a lot of our, even when we're communicating as writers, it's always like, okay, what does this really mean? You know, yeah. <laughs> He's saying well, this, what does this really mean? It's a weird balance. When Dana White used to do those media scrums, which could be as long as 40 to 50 minutes, I would love those. It's just him being honest about certain matchups he wanted or what's going on. And when you're this major MMA and UFC fan, you're eating those up because you don't get those from any other sport. If you get a press conference from the president or a GM or a coach from another organization or team, it's just stock answers. It's uh, we'll see what True. happens. I don't want to comment on that. And it's, it's not that interesting when Dana White's calling 
calling out certain fighters for not accepting fights or different things like that. Sure, maybe it's not the best way to run a business, but there's this like, I can't believe he's saying this nature to it, <laughs> almost professional wrestling style. And I think there are a lot of professional wrestling roots in MMA, but you mentioned before that a lot of journalists early on were kind of just happy to be there, which I totally understand that. I know yeah. uh, a lot of the people who I've worked with in video game coverage, when you start getting free stuff sent to you and you see your byline on major sites, you're just excited. So you're kind of just like, oh, I'll give this positive coverage because I just I'm happy to be here instead of actually 100%. looking deeper into things. And now that it is more of a sport, do you think there is a chilling effect with someone who has not just threatened, but has actually pulled credentials from people whose coverage he didn't agree with. And very often later, that coverage of the news that was broken is proven to be true. I, I don't see you as someone who really pulls punches or doesn't say <laughs> something with fear of Dana White, but having this sort of band hammer float over your head, can that be worrisome for other people and maybe just particular for you? Um. For me, no. I mean, I've always been of a as a columnist, man. I mean, my opinion is what it's got to be. And I was, I've, I've been fairly critical of, you know, matchmaking to um, the the hypocrisy that Dana has d displayed over the years. I mean, I've been very, um, I've I've maintained that. But there are certain aspects of the game, obviously, that you're marching to their beat. You can't help it. It's just that it's your if you're covering the sport, you're going to. Um, be reacting to whatever Dana says. It's just, it's one of those type of things that it's, it's very, it's very weird, man. And I think you gotta, it's almost like you gotta have an, an enthusiasm that kind of extends, um, to in such, in such a variety of ways, because, mm. you know, like when, when it's like, you had to roll with the punch. I said that earlier, like in terms of even the Dana switch, like just to know how to, how to cover it and keep enthusiastic. You know what I mean? Because yeah. uh, at, at some point, there's so many events and there's so much going on. I think that the biggest, the biggest, you know, you mentioned the credentials being pulled. Before, so that was right. I, if I recall, that was UFC in 199 yes. when that whole thing went down. Right and, before um, the main event. Yes, and, and so that was right before UFC 200, which is when they announced the sale. And um, it was almost like to me that was almost like this. I'm going to do this uh, this parting this parting shot. Yeah. <laughs> Even though he didn't leave the company. Um, it was almost like he wanted to, to flex that, that muscle one last time or something. And, um, obviously it backfired in a major way, but I think the the weirdest part now is just what is his enthusiasm level in general? Like I was talking about uh, media's enthusiasm, level, like finding this enthusiasm to keep covering the sport in the directions it wants to go. But where is his enthusiasm after you cash in for over $300 million, um, is he mailing it in? And I think there's a lot of evidence that there, you know, he does mail it in a yeah. great deal more. So I think that then you're like, okay, well, he's he's the face of the organization, but something came, something of the significance and gravity of everything that he's been about disappeared, and it has continued to diminish over time to get to where we're at now. So he's 100% the same figure. He's, uh, but I I feel like I'm never I'm not worried about whatever repercussion they can come up with. I cover it like it's a real sport. I know a lot of the other, I know a lot of the other journalists basically share the same sentiment at this point. I just, it, back in the day, man, as you, if you followed it, um, 10 years ago, you know, that we fairly glowed, like media glowed about just about every decision. That is absolutely not the case anymore. Yeah. And I don't feel like too many people are fearing the repercussions. There might be a couple who just know that they're going to get primo seating at the events they're going to get any interview they want all those things they may they may uh tap dance a little bit more to the ufc just because they want to keep 
they're where they're at, like their their stronghold on getting the good interviews and all that stuff. And there's a couple of those out there still, but I feel like they're the exception now. Most people are covering it um, more realistically these days. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I get the exact same sense too. And I bet early on it had to be weird because your positive coverage boosted the UFC and you had an investment in the UFC because the UFC was the reason you had this specific job. So there maybe is this back of your head yeah. thing of like, I am almost sustaining myself with this positive coverage, which it's like ethically, it's a weird thing. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really weird spot. But now that it is a real sport, I do feel like but, overall the coverage has been better. Yeah, ethically it was. But at the same time, when you think, well, this thing doesn't exist. Yeah, it didn't exist until now. It's it, it's it obviously adds a gray area because you're, you are alerting the public like you're back in those days, especially you were alerting the public of his existence. Yeah. And so you're it, it was weird because you did tend to let the positive shine bigger because you wanted the sport to kind of get bigger. You know, it's like uh, so I felt like it, it was it was very, very strange. Um, there, not that there weren't people who were very critical of just about everything going on, including the t- obvious inherent taboos and all that stuff. But uh, I felt like for people who just wanted to see it get off the ground and um, and all that stuff, you could understand the skewed coverage to an extent back then. Yeah. Do you think right now you mentioned Dana White to a certain extent has kind of showed signs that he's checked out after this sale? Would you prefer an Adam Silver from the NBA kind of figure coming in and running this like a business and doing a new spin on it? Or do you think even though MMA is more of a sport than ever, do you think having someone like Dana White, even if he's 50% of what he used to be, is still essential? So for me, man, very specifically, I love the chaotic elements of the sport. I love the hypocrisy. I love the strange swindlers and all the weird things that go on around it. I think that that's what makes it different. You know what I mean? Like, um, you know, even the even the lies, even the hype, you know, like you hype up these certain people or certain guys get hyped up or it's just all of it makes this very unique situation. (laughs) And it's like that's what I find a lot of fun. I get fun uh, and it. you know, excitement, I guess, out of that sort of thing. Dana White is the perfect ringleader for that environment. Um, and he's done it for so long, you know, that you you can't help but feel like the Wild West is still prevailing. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I feel like it's and, – and, and in some ways, that's very enjoyable. The one thing that has happened, like with uh, the WME purchase, they came in, they they bought the UFC. They never put, they never addressed the media. They never put out any kind of, um, you know, press release. Essentially, they just silently took over. This is a weird sport, man, because as you know, the Fertitta brothers who owned it and really made it what it is with Dana White treated it almost like a family affair, and that included the that included the fans themselves. And by and by extension, an open armed uh, open armed entry for anybody casual who wanted to come closer to the sport. It was very wide open to join and become as enthusiastic about it as you wanted, man. I mean, it felt like a family affair. It always it always carried that vibe. Um, it felt like if, if people were tweeting about a certain matchup or whatever, the UFC would look into that matchup because the bottom line was that they wanted to put on the fights that people wanted to see. Um, and that core, the hardcore fan basically would be the the you know the central lifeblood <laughs> going yeah. on essentially of what was going on these days so with the, with the new owners just being silent it's almost like that they snapped that connection there's no longer a family feel to it it's like a um, it already starts to take on a if not like an adam silver like you mentioned but m- more like an, an entertainment enterprise where it's just it's a lot colder um the writing you know it's not as easy to predict a lot of the 
you know, the warm narratives that people are yearning for don't come together because uh, there's a disconnect, obviously, between the ownership and the fan base. And that's what's weird, man. Um, so in some ways, even with Dana there, he's more of a, I, I don't want to say a puppet figure because I still think he literally contributes pretty heavily to what the decisions are going on in the company. But he strikes me more that way nowadays. Like he's, you know, it's they're, they're, it's more of a shell of what we we're what we're used to. Um in that sense of him being the public face, it's very, it's very, very different, man. At some point, they have to address it. I can't say that yeah. I'm pining for the moment that they say, "Okay, we're going to bring in a strictly business guy," because to me, the sport it really, really thrives on its on all the weird, wild, loose ends that are going on at once. Um, so I, I kind of want to keep him that way, but I, I can understand too as this thing moves into a billion dollar uh, business that at some point something like that probably will be inevitable. You know what I mean? So. Um, I guess right now I'm just kind of still embracing it, and yeah. I don't think it seems too soon. But as soon as people get kind of used to it being, you know, in the spotlight and everything else, I, I feel like that'll be inevitable. You mentioned billion dollar business, and it's funny because even though your team in MMA fighting talks about it all the time, and many MMA media members discuss it, I feel like fighter pay is not a big enough story for the general public who watches <laughs> the UFC yeah. because some of these people are losing money flying to Brazil and fighting because a lot of that goes to their camp um if you're just entered the ufc i mean just recently they went from eight and eight to ten and ten so for people who don't know you get ten thousand dollars basically just to make weight and show up and if you win you get ten thousand dollars it's twenty thousand dollars to maybe fly across the country bring in these different corner men you're taxed heavily because that's a they're contractors not full-time employees you're not Unless you're top tier, you're not making real money. You could True. fight three times in a year, win two of them, get knocked out in the other one, and you're barely making regular money for like a middle class person. And you're dealing with brain damage. You're, you're yep. not getting health insurance. It's it's a really crazy thing. So can a sport like MMA ever get the major athletes that go into the NFL or NBA when really it's only the cream of the crop who get paid and can it ever really be taken fully seriously if there's still yeah. people getting their brains like batted around for twenty thousand dollars it's it's really the cream of the crop that you mentioned that i think drives this idea that you know why you go through these sacrifices why you would take a fight for eight and eight or ten and ten why you would even do any of that it's just the the fact that you believe in yourself enough like these guys um they believe that they can find glory and that the fact that, you know, you can make that money at a certain point. You can graduate into this other sphere of pay. Uh, Conor, the Conor McGregor stuff is all unprecedented. But, like, there's there are there are a lot of people these days who make, you know, enough that we consider them rich at this point. Um, there aren't a lot. But the guys who, you know, ascend to... Daniel Cormier status or I don't know like guys like that who are just they're they're making big chunks and they're getting pay-per-view points I guess that's still the the allure is saying like you know at some point I could end up in this spot but it is a major story and I mean 80% of these guys you know in the, leave come come through the UFC ranks and leave this game no better off in terms of um, maybe people know their names a little bit um but they're just not they're not rich. <laughs> they're no. just dealing now. They're just dealing now with uh, what what do they do after fighting? And that leads to its own set of um, existential crisis where they, they want to fight elsewhere and they make even less money. They want to get back to the UFC. It's just it is a brutal, brutal business for a lot of these guys to get in. Um, it's really based on the promise that you can make that kind of money, that you can ascend to those ranks. And right now it's understandable because we've seen enough rags to riches stories where you're like, OK, 
you know, th this is there, th it's there, but obviously, man, it's, it's soul crushing to cover these guys <laughs> who, uh, yeah. who give so much and, you know, that you, you find out that they had to fly, like you mentioned, they had to fly their team into Brazil or wherever it is, Australia, um, and broke even on a camp, you know, or stuff like that, or actually lost money. It's just, at some point you're like, man, what are you putting on the line for? That glory is not worth it, especially if you're fighting on a prelim, which or something like that, where you're not even getting the glory. You know, you're just you're just affiliated with the glory. You know, yeah. Um, so, I, a bigger deal needs to be made of it. I feel like that's something that has to be addressed. But when you're running that many events and everything else, I mean, it's just in that you know you have that many fights on every event. It's just. I don't know how they're going to solve that. <laughs> you know I, I don't what I mean? know either. It's, it's incredible to think that if you're on the undercard of a smaller Fox Sports 1 show and you go through this three-round war where you look like a different human by the end of it, that's an investment in yourself because you're not really getting paid for it in the end. Right. It's just incredible to to really think that way. To Like you said, I, I think the, the success stories like the Conor McGregor's, the Ronda Rousey's, the John Jones, different stuff like that, there is kind of that carrot and a stick, right? We're like, well, eventually, yep. if I keep putting the time in, I can get there. But then you look at someone like um, Chris Lieben, who was, I think, Ultimate Fighter 1, which that yep. series got a bunch of views and in a lot of ways saved the UFC and probably had upwards of 20 UFC fights and was known as this brawler who, like, let's be honest, we haven't... MMA hasn't been around long enough to really know what sort of CTE we might see later on. But if there's mm -hmm. anyone who might have it, you worry about someone like that. And I think he's doing real estate now. Yeah, um, he is. Because basically it was a health condition that he couldn't fight in Bellator, I think was a story on that one. And Yeah, he had some heart defect or something like which that. Which is it's, uh, terrifying. Yeah. And yeah, to exactly. think that you're now at this point after fighting, you know, he, he main evented some shows, he he fought all the best and definitely is, has permanent damage that you're not really going to be able to reverse. And now he's not in a spot where he can live comfortably. He still has to work a day job just to keep going. Yep. That's that's a bummer to say out loud. I know, man. Well, I mean, it, there are a lot like him. I mean, obviously, he's one of the key figures because, we, like you mentioned, we've seen him in brawls, like basically where he was a fan-friendly fighter, meaning he just chomps down on his mouthpiece and throws bombs with guys. And um, we have seen a little bit of uh, an evolution in that. Like, guy, there are a lot more fighters these days interested in self-preservation rather than just giving the company what they want um, to go out there and just, you know, rattle teeth, <laughs> you know, that sort of yeah. thing. Like, I feel like they... Uh, a lot more people are more like the, the the game has evolved. The sport has evolved enough where guys know how to preserve themselves a lot better. Um, but still, I mean, you still got like guys who that's that's their 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 whole thing. They want to go out there and win the bonuses. That's why the bonus structure exists. Um, these fifty thousand dollar performance bonuses and stuff like that. They want to throw caution to the wind to get that. It's like a very short, you know, short sighted way yeah. to think. But um, some people, that's what they want to do, man. Um, you're never going to be able to get rid of that condition in the UFC. And I, I guess in that way, you're like, well, the, the fighters themselves have to determine exactly what they want to accomplish in the sport. You know what I mean? Yeah. So some guys, if they want to make that, uh, Joe Lozon has made a career basically off of his performance bonuses. Um, and that's great, man. But he has started, the, 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 the tolls are starting to take their, you know, the, you're starting to see it. Each fight yeah. is getting nicked up more and more. And at some point you're like, all right, man, enough is enough. <laughs> well, uh, and it's also just a bummer when you hear, you know, on national TV, over a million people watching someone on there being like, I need this $50,000 to change my life. I'm I like, know. Man, I'm not 
$50,000 is not a lot <laughs> compared to like I what know. maybe you should be making. But yeah, I think it is a condition that's difficult to get rid of. Uh, these are the sort of nitty gritty issues that people on MMA fighting would immediately understand because they're so in this. But you also write for The Ringer, uh, which <laughs> right. is more of a general sports culture and tech site. I've had Jason Concepcion and Shea Serrano on this podcast before talking about different aspects of The Ringer. But for you as someone who covers a more niche sport compared to basketball or football, do you have to sort of change the way you talk about different cards and maybe go yeah. in at different angles in order to write for that audience? Yes. And it's been a, it's been a weird challenge, man, because, um, like you said, obviously if the ringer audience and the ringer is a, is a cool entity and it's also a very different one because it's a lot of pop culture tech and basketball, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's like a lot of, uh, they, they have these niche things like, uh, they have, they have broad things and they have very specific things that they really dove into really well. Um, but MMA was kind of one of those things that I think the Bill Simmons was personally intrigued to have covered. Um, yeah, he talks he, about in his podcast every once in a while too. Yeah, yeah, but he just—I felt like he didn't at yeah, Grantland, especially. He didn't have the right. He couldn't find the right, the right voice, the right guy. Well, fortunately for me, I felt like as the Ringer started, um, you know, I was no longer at ESPN, and there was all the there's all this, um, you know, transition and stuff going on. It was like it was, it was the right timing for me to maybe do some stuff for them. But it, like you mentioned, it becomes a whole different thing because I feel like you have to add context to just about everything. It's it's yeah. very easy to write a column um, for MMA fighting because I can make inside jokes 10 times in a single column and everything's, oh, that's that's well, perfect. You know, you got it right. You just got it. <laughs> you got you hit every note. Yeah. But when you're talking about the ringer, that stuff, you can't really do that. It becomes a broader, um, you have to really write in a broader sense to include a person who knows nothing about MMA. That somebody would, uh, you know, start to read it uh, be able to understand right away or, or intrigue them to look up the details. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's like it becomes like a uh, you know, one of those old, uh, you know, one of those old situations where you do, you're basically trying to fill in every possible blank, but also not go so specific as to make it boring. Yeah, <laughs> so exactly. It's, uh, so it's, it's one of those situations. And plus, you know, for my readership, the people who are used to reading me, I have to still be uh, tapping my foot to the what's really happening in MMA and get those people to read it with the same kind of intrigue that they would one of my MMA writing uh, uh, fighting pieces. So it's it's a weird balance. But as we cover it more and more for the ringer, I feel like they allow me a little more leeway to take for granted the education of my audience. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so that that sort of stuff helps. And uh, but I will say, man, it is it is a complete it is. It's a challenge, man. <laughs> it's it, a challenge to switch gears. Is there maybe a focus, too, on instead of going more the technical side of why this person might win, why this person might you know, get a title shot afterward, to go into more of the personality stuff where you talk about, um, the, again, the heavyweight fight, which had uh, Francis Ngannou, who was just yeah. homeless recently. Like it, It's only been fighting in MMA for four or five years, has come from an entirely different place. Do you think maybe that's kind of been the best way to get at people to make the, the human side of it more apparent? Yeah, I think the I think that these guys who have a unique backstory obviously kind of gives it a reason to exist on their site. Like, so you have a person who's intriguing, like Francis Ngannou. Um, you know, I haven't really done a lot of profiles. That was one of the few, the first. That's, that's probably the second or third one I've done for the Ringer. Um, and, but the type of person that they might want is somebody like Francis Ngannou, who's an actual blue chip prospect, six and oh, six finishes. Obviously, we're seeing him wreck everybody in the in the division, a heavyweight division, but also has this backstory. And it's like, well, why don't we marry this into some kind of comprehensive? Um, 
you know, piece that kind of fills in our general audience who this guy is, you know. Yeah. And I feel like that's that's exactly the kind of intrigue, uh, intriguing fighter that they would be interested in a profile. Otherwise, a lot of my stuff has been more table setters, what's coming up this weekend, um, and that sort of thing. Or or we take, you know, five takeaways or, you know, things like that. It's just, it's a lot of different, um, it's broader and it's, it is more human interest and it's more like especially why these guys are, are good, explaining yeah. why they're good, what they've done and, and kind of filling in on those blanks. So um, it's, it's fun. It's a different challenge. Uh, and the biographical detail, like I'm one of these guys who's like almost allergic to biographical detail <laughs> in a piece because everybody uses it. You know what I mean? Like everybody tries to tell you this the same story. And I'm like, well, can we just brush that or can I splice that stuff in through through the writing? You know, just yeah. through the writing. I don't want to have like a two paragraph block where I'm just talking about this guy's backstory. Why can't I just splice it through? So I've really, especially for The Ringer, I've been very cognizant of that, trying to not bog it down with biographical detail, but to kind of splice it in, you know what I mean? So yeah. that you kind of, you kind of get enough to understand the gravity of everything. And, um, but it's, it's, it's been a lot of fun, man. I actually, it's been a lot of fun and I'm just glad that they are, I'm glad that the ringer has, you know, cares because yeah. so many of these, so many of these types of places don't really care about MMA, but they've really, they've got enough people over there, obviously Bill being one of them who, uh, who really like MMA, I think. Yeah, and they seem to like to try things to go different routes, like not just with different sports, but they'll suddenly be writing poems about the NBA or <laughs> yeah. random things like that about football, where there's just like a let's see what I'm gonna have to let's check out your Shea Serrano one, man. That's like a, <laughs> he he's is one great. of the most unique people to talk to because especially if you don't, I didn't know him personally beforehand. It's similar to this where you start talking and like halfway through, I'm like, I don't know if he's being sarcastic or not, and I'm not yes. exactly sure which direction to take. But he's he's awesome. He's that's his writing too, man. That's what's so funny about it. That's yeah. what's great about him. He's so great. Uh, yeah. You mentioned before being broader with your approach in terms of MMA at The Ringer, but as actual writers and, you know, quote unquote journalists, people have to be broader these days. You have to not just be able to write. You need to have podcasting experience. You need to be comfortable <laughs> in front of a camera. You need to maybe even True. be able to edit video or edit photos and different stuff like that. People don't just want a single one. Like you can't just be a writer these days, which is a bit of a bummer, but you're on the MMA beat, which is a mostly weekly show with different journalists about MMA in general. How long did it take you to feel comfortable doing something like that, to be able to take a question, be able to pass it over to someone else, to be able to go for an hour 15 about different topics. Is that something you enjoy and kind of feel good about? That was a big transition too, because you know, going back to when I was editing uh, the Alt Weekly in California, like the only thing you might do, like, you know, I would end up on radio situations where people like, you know, some college radio in Riverside would be like, hey, you want to come and talk about the best songs, you know, about that are out there or do some kind of interview, that sort of thing. Very, you know, easy, easy stuff. You'd go in and you know, you'd do this, but like you get into MMA and I, I fully didn't even anticipate, honestly, delving into any kind of podcasting, uh, not uh, television, any of that stuff. I never, it never really occurred to me that the, where I was heading with MMA could end up in those spheres. Yeah. Like and at least initially, cause I was more of a features writer. Um, and I always consider myself a writer, not really even a journalist, just more of a writer who happens to find himself in the, in the, in the world <laughs> of journalism. But, uh, so anyway, as time was going on, especially as I got to ESPN, they they started they used to have a show, maybe they still do, but uh, it was called MMA Live. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so um, I would do these little web hits for them, and that was like the 
the first i mean i had been doing some radio stuff with mma like uh, podcasts and stuff just as a guest like i'm doing right now i basically show up and talk about the game but the espn stuff was like hey we want you to come in as an insider and they started to you know we do these like 10 minute boom 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 hit topics get out and then the mm. show they they took me on for the show at on espn2 which was uh aired maybe like 2012 so i did that like basic i don't know if you'd call it a season of MMA Live, and that was where I was in Bristol in the studio, and I'm doing, um, you know, stuff with Pat Militich and guys, you know, guys who fought, oh, and you have real hosts, you know, <laughs> and you're like you're doing these, uh, you're doing it for a half hour show, and I feel like that's where I had to really understand how to do it, hey, make your points quickly, um, you know, what to hit on, what what not to be doing. I mean, I had to really think about those things during that process, um, and so like I got really, I think that that's where I started to understand you know, how to, how to best handle it. It was something like, like I said, it was completely foreign to me and to start. And then after a while, man, because there's so many talking heads these days, it's, you start to just be like, dude, just communicate, <laughs> communicate what you're going to say. And that's yeah, it. Like a the human. MMA, yes, exactly. And I feel like that's what people more appreciate than anything. They don't want this stilted talk or anything. So the MMA beat, I thought was just a great concept. I'm not sure. I think it might've been Mike Chiapetta um, who came up with the concept before he left MMA fighting, and now he's back. But um, he wanted, he was like, why don't we do a, uh, you know, some kind of roundtable? And I think Eric Hawane was like, yeah, we can make it like the sports reporters, mm, yeah, which is basically guys sitting around um, debating topics. And a lot of it would be, you know, the, the so MMA beat, meaning we would cover everything, not just the fights. And actually, the fights being the last of it. Really, it was like, what's all been going on the week in MMA? Um, and a lot of that is, you know, over the course of the last few years has been negative. <laughs> a lot of it has been about, you know, drug failures or guys getting busted for other things, uh, guys, you know, weight issues, people like almost dying, getting to the scale, you know, things like this, um, the, the sale of the company and what, you know, Dana White doing this and the matchmaking um, <laughs> things that are going on. It's like a lot of it. So that, that ends up being a lot of it. And the bottom line is, you know, you just... It's fun to do because what you, you you it's one of those platforms where you're like hey, you know I have something to say on it. A lot of times you don't. You just have to think about it and think. Well, what 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 is there to communicate about this? You know. Yeah. But it becomes like a its own thing. Like it's the exact opposite of the ringer in the sense that it has to be very specific. Um, so if anything, that's really the that's what's crazy is you go from one end of the spectrum to the next, or you ex- over explain something to something where you take for granted that your audience absolutely knows what you're talking about. Um, so it's like, um, it's, it's weird, but you get really used to it, man. Like, and especially working with guys like Luke Thomas, who I think this, his whole reason to exist is to talk, you know, to people on <laughs> camera and, uh, and yeah. Ariel Hawani, who's very good. You know, he makes it very, 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 very easy. And Jeff Wagenheim and these guys. So it was one of those things I didn't, I think when we first started, we weren't even show we weren't sure it was going to, um, you know what it was going to do. And over, over the course of the last few years, man, it's just been it's been uh, really well received, and it's become a lot of fun. Now it's now it's just very natural to go on there and just uh, have a discussion with these guys. That's what it feels like. Let's just go to talk about the topics, have a discussion. Yeah, so like very you, very easy. Like you mentioned earlier, like half the maybe eighty percent of the interest around MMA and the UFC is the stuff that's not the fights. It's the storylines going around it. So it's the True. perfect sort of sport to do. 
a show like that where you're not talking about the fights, but you're talking about contract disputes and yeah, new things and, that are set up. And there's no it. off season, man. It's like and there's really no off season in MMA, and so there's always. And we consider a slow week when we have to kind of talk about the fights. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's like so. That's kind of the the basis of the show. Like you know, it's it's really the nitty gritty. What's going on behind the scenes, even in the media. Uh, media portrayals of stuff we'll talk about all that stuff so it's really just having a finger on the pulse of everything that's going on in mma and uh it's great to do it man because it keeps me paying attention on a on on a very specific level you know what i mean like i have to pay pay attention to the minutia that's going on and um so much comes of that just being that informed all the time of uh what's going on in the world of mma yep and not to talk too much about the fights but uh last thing is there a single fight or event for 2018 that you're most looking forward to cover whether it be just from a stylistic standpoint or even just a i don't like like a conor mcgregor thing where like how yeah. are they going to figure out this contract or you might take it from the angle of the Khabib versus tony where it's like i have no idea what's going to happen here i'm not worried about the drama surrounding it i just want to see the fight True. does anything stand out well, that fight particularly, man, but it's like this is the fourth time they booked this fight. It's crazy. So there's a little bit of an, uh, you know, an exhaustion to the matchmaking. But the great thing about that particular fight, Tony against uh, Habib, is that it has escalated in my mind in the stakes and the drama, you know, each time mm-hmm. they booked it. So it's gotten more intriguing <laughs> each time they booked it. Yeah. Um, so I'm kind of desperate to see that fight now because you have a guy on a 10 fight win streak against a guy who's never lost. And there's this dangling carrot at the end of it, Conor McGregor. So it's perfectly placed to be like a major fight, um, even though the players themselves may not like, you know, maybe the main, they aren't the biggest mainstream names. It's but the so fact bizarre. That, yeah. Like you, you, usually you think fights like that to keep falling through a snake bitten. But like you said, I want to see that. I'm almost happy it didn't happen before because yeah. now it means 10 times more. Yes, exactly. And it sounds like from... From everything that's going on, obviously they booked the fight. It's going to happen. And from you know, from the standpoint of Conor McGregor, it sounds like they're positioning him possibly to face the winner. Now, these things like the Conor McGregor stuff is a whole different podcast. <laughs> but it's like uh, still somehow but, has a belt, yeah. kind of. Yes, kind of has the belt. Um, but man, you mentioned in 2018. Obviously, that fight we just talked about would be big. But imagining a fight between. Conor McGregor and either one of those guys is equally big, if not yeah. bigger, and obviously because of Conor having his name and all that's kind of at stake. But somebody mentioned the possibility of Conor fighting in uh, in Nurmagomedov in Russia, and oh, I mean that's like Rocky Four come to it life, really man. Is. I mean, but it's, at the same time, um, I, I that's a massive, massive fight on every level. So if something like that were to materialize, obviously that I would look at that as maybe one of the best things that's ever happened to MMA. But um, a lot has to kind of get there, you know, kind of happen to get to that point. But um, I think that the drama for 2018 will evolve around those three guys, at least initially. No, I totally agree with you. And hopefully it's a better year than 2017. It'd, oh, yeah. it'd be nice to have an up year after that. You mean year. you mean the biggest year in UFC oh, history? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I guess we, we can only go up from here or only go down from here. <laughs> I don't even know. It's whatever Dana White says in the moment. Yeah, uh, exactly. Last, last thing, I promise. Where can people find you on social media? And what are you working on right now that you can actually talk about? Um... I mean, right now, I'm basically there's a there's a there's a couple of feature ideas that are just getting started, so I wouldn't even feel comfortable mentioning them just yet. Okay. But there's but there's kind of a, a cool anniversary coming up of something that happened in MMA that I'm going to try to tackle without being too cryptic on it. But uh, <laughs> but they uh, 
if you, I mean, I'm on Twitter. I don't really do a lot of the other stuff. I'm on Twitter uh, just at my name, at Chuck Mindenhall, and that's that's the easiest place to find me. I think my email is, I put my email on there now. That's actually how you've been communicating, right? Like, use yes. that email. So um, so that's the that's the easiest way to lodge complaints <laughs> about what <laughs> I wrote. Throw them all over there, exactly. just throw your entire inbox. Yep, exactly. Uh, perfect. Chuck, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, it's been fun. I, I think I mentioned before I talked to... Uh, ben Folks and Chad Dundas and I I mostly my world revolves around games coverage but there's this big part that's of awesome. me that's just obsessed with MMA and the the journalistic side of that yeah. the actual business side of that so yeah I appreciate your work for a long time what you do in the MMA beat and yeah can't wait for you to be less cryptic in the future and so we can learn more <laughs> about these different things you're working on awesome man it was a lot of fun thanks a lot brother and no problem at all thanks again everyone for listening hopefully tune back in for the next episode of the 1099